As we continue our study of the book of Leviticus, um, one thing that I hope is clear to you, if you've been here as we've worked through this now for a couple of weeks, um, is that at least at the beginning, at least at the beginning of the book, each law, in fact, each sacrificial offering that we've talked about so far is built upon the last. And so if you think of this as an order of worship, as a, as a liturgical order, it, it kind of makes sense. See, we do the same thing here. Um, over the years, I've adjusted the order slightly, and um, I'm sure we will again. So now, for example, the announcements, which don't really fit into worship at all, they take place... Um, Instead of in the, in the middle somewhere, they take place at the beginning because we want our hearts and our minds focused on the Lord throughout the service and not, not interrupted with information about a business meeting or some other, by comparison, trivial matter. And so we start with a call to worship, a summons to declare and, and ponder the wonderful things that God has done. We sing praises to the Lord in those first couple of songs almost every week um, are almost always songs that proclaim His majesty and His faithfulness. If you know anything about the Psalms, um, these are like those first two songs that we sing every week are, are, are sort of like the, the songs of ascent that the Israelites would sing as they climbed the hill of the Lord and and one day we will sing some of those specific psalms. We're actually getting there. Of course, we follow this um, with offerings and a, and a prayer that acknowledges that, that all that we have, all that we can bring is from the Lord. It's just a portion of what He has so bountifully blessed each one of us with. And we give not to get anything in return but with the trust that the Lord will use the offerings to further the work of the ministry, the spread of the kingdom of heaven. We also read God's word. We do so in obedience. I mention that often. We confess our sins. We hear a reminder that He has forgiven us, that everyone who has called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We let the word of Christ dwell in this body richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and seeing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And we eat of the bread and drink of the cup and so proclaim his death until he returns. From the moment that the greeting is proclaimed, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, from the moment that greeting is proclaimed all the way to, through to the final, until the final benediction is prayed, which is something like this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Each element of our worship is built upon what has come before. We also know that 
Many of us in the room here today come from a variety of churches, a variety of church backgrounds, and therefore we have a kind of a variety of liturgical backgrounds. And so there's, there's probably some other elements that we don't do that maybe you did at some point. Well, in the book of Acts, one of the very first um, and most basic descriptions of church life is seen in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, which says this. Acts 2, 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, we know those verses, that passage, to be a a description of what they did and not necessarily a prescription for what all churches must do. So, so for example, um, they went to the temple every day. But there are two problems with that for us. First, the temple is in Jerusalem, not Bell Fountain. Um, And two... The temple was actually destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70 and has never been rebuilt. But that doesn't mean that we can't can't learn from what they did and apply it to ourselves, particularly the devotion of their hearts in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And so over the past several years, we've actually worked really hard to focus on those four areas. The doctrine, the apostles' teaching, the teaching of the church, the fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. So let's consider just for a moment the fellowship. The fellowship. In ancient Israel, a meal, a fellowship meal together was something to be shared with guests and it was often seen as a, as a sign of hospitality. So we see this frequently in the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob um, in particular. We see it in other places too. It's all over the Old Testament. But listen to Abraham's eagerness to be hospitable, to share a meal in Genesis chapter 18. Just listen to the eagerness. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and they stood, he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, that makes it sound like it happened in a matter of minutes. But Abraham didn't have an Instapot. So this was a full-on commitment to hospitality. And it was part of the culture of the ages. It's even listed as a, as a character trait for, for elders, church elders, in both 1 Timothy and in Titus. They are to be hospitable. 
But sharing a meal, not only could it signify and represent that hospitality, but also um, could be much more than that. So, for example, consider how the prophet Samuel honored Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 15 to 24. And, and just to set the scene, Saul doesn't know this will become King Saul. He doesn't know that he's about to be anointed the first king of Israel. He's just out looking for his dad's lost donkeys. Okay? So, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15, it says this. Now, the day before Samuel came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord uh, told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer, that is the, the prophet? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan of the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Israel? Why then have you spoken to me this way? And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought him into the hall and gave him a, piece, a place at the head of the table who had been um, the head of the table of those who had been invited. Uh, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and uh, what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what, is kept, uh, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed so that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now that's a long story, but it's a kind of a humorous scene. He's out looking for his dad's lost donkeys that had gotten loose, and he finds himself the guest of honor at a banquet at Samuel's place. Now, just sort of so that you kind of get the feel of it, it, it would be like finding yourselves a guest of honor at Billy Graham's house. That's sort of the, the, the um, status that Samuel had, and they've been waiting for him. They've reserved the best, uh, the best of the meal for him, the leg, the drumstick. And then to top it all off, shortly after the meal, Samuel pulls out a flask of oil and he uh, anoints Saul as king. So, here's the point. Sharing a meal together is a way to express hospitality. It's a way to show honor to a special guest. But then additionally... Sharing a meal together also sometimes functioned as a way to confirm a covenant relationship. So other cultures like ours, um, we might shake hands to confirm a covenant relationship. We might sign contracts or maybe even have a, a signing ceremony. 
But think about it like this. In our culture, we actually do this regularly. We eat a meal together to confirm a covenant relationship every time we attend a wedding reception. Of course, this is kind of changing as we move kind of further and further away from our biblical anchor as a society, but that's what a wedding reception is. It's two families come together to witness the making of a lifetime covenant commitment, and then both families stay and they participate in the confirmation of the covenant as they eat that covenant meal together. So we see this in ancient Israel as well. After Israel entered into covenant with the Lord at Mount Sinai, the the Mosaic covenant, we see this um, formally taking place in Exodus 20 to 24. After they enter into agreement with the Lord, Moses and several of Israelites' leaders ascend the hill of the Lord, and Exodus 24 verses 9 to 11 says this, Then Moses and Aaron... Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This was a covenant meal. They were confirming the covenant relationship. God had said to them, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then Moses and Aaron Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up the mountain as representative heads, and they ate this covenant meal to confirm the covenant between Israel and Yahweh. This is a long introduction to Leviticus chapter 3. I acknowledge that. But let me give you an aside here. We're getting there. Let me give you an aside here, something for us to consider. Don't miss the connection that we have with communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a covenant meal. It's it's actually a covenant renewal meal. Each Lord's Day, we eat and drink and so proclaim His death. We so proclaim that He is our God and we are His people. We are the sheep of his pasture, and he has caused us to lie down beside his still waters, and he has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. In fact, Peter will put it like this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because of the atonement. Because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All who call on Him shall be saved. Now, With all of this context, covenant meal, place of honor, hospitality, bear in mind, I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 3, 
But I also want you to remember Leviticus chapter 1, burnt offerings, providing atonement, and therefore access to Yahweh's tent, the grain offerings of thanksgiving in chapter 2. And so now we come to the peace offerings of Leviticus chapter 3. Let's read this, Leviticus chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of, of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar, and from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that, um, that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and lay his hand on its head, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in your dwelling, all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Let's stop and pray here. Lord, we need your help today. We need your spirit to guide us to understand, to understand your word. I pray that you'd give us um, what we need today, that you would speak to us through your word that your name might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this peace offering, um, which is sometimes called a fellowship offering, was a way for the Israelites to honor the Lord by giving him the very best of the meat. And I'll explain that in a little bit because it doesn't look like the very best. But then in addition to that, this, this offering was also brought to reaffirm and to celebrate the covenant relationship that the people of Israel enjoyed with Yahweh and with each other. And the peace offering would come to be, a little bit later, would come to be a shared meal in which the offerer, the worshiper, those bringing the offering, they celebrated with all of those assembled in the sanctuary. 
and they celebrated the, the benefits of peaceful fellowship with God. It was a joyful time of feasting in the presence of the Lord. And it was all made possible by the blood atonement, by the burnt offering that we looked at in chapter 1. So, so put it another way, and I, I want to be sure that you understand this because, because these things can be really hard to wrap our minds around. The fact that a peace offering was offered at all indicated that something had been wrong, something had been missing between the worshiper and God, but now has been remedied. Something was wrong and has now been fixed. The fact that a peace offering could be brought at all indicated that. So I'll put it like this. If you're not a Christian, and and what I mean by that is that you have not repented of your sins, you have not uh, put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're living in rebellion against God and His commands for holiness, purity, and walking in godliness then the apostolic greeting at the beginning of our worship every week is actually not for you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If if you're not a Christian, if you're not His, that's not a statement for you. That's why I say every week that if you are not a Christian, don't eat the covenant meal because you're still under the wrath of God. Frankly, whether you... Believe that or not. But there's good news. Because today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, the peace offering, this peace offering was offered because forgiveness has been granted. And those who have trusted in Christ for salvation are now in peaceful fellowship with Yahweh. When we get up to chapter 7 of Leviticus, we're going to see some of the occasions in which some of the in which the people were to bring this peace offering. They would bring it at times of thanksgiving. They would bring it at the fulfillment of vows or or even for just a, a free will offering. Essentially a, a faithful believer could bring a peace offering at almost any time to to celebrate the peaceful fellowship they enjoyed with the covenant-keeping, faithful God. Now, like like the offerings before it, this chapter actually falls into three paragraphs. There's three divisions. It's divided into the herd or the the cattle in verses 1 to 5, sheep in verses 6 to 11, and goats in verses 12 to 16. And each paragraph follows roughly the same pattern. I don't know if you noticed it or not. Um, It essentially says, if he brings this, then he's to do this. And each, each paragraph, each section, also closes with the same explanation that this is a food offering to the Lord. A food offering to the Lord. Now, it's not stated explicitly here in chapter 3, but later in chapter 7, when the Lord gives some specific instructions to the priests about all of this, um, we're going to see that this was, in fact, a communal meal. So so we could see chapter 3 today as the recipe for the meal, 
And then in chapter 7, when we get there, we're going to see the instructions for the, for the table servers, for the wait staff, for the priests. So this is the recipe. And what's important to remember here is that this is a celebration of peace and fellowship with Yahweh, with the Lord. And it is, first of all, it is based on the shed blood of the substitute. This fellowship, peaceful fellowship offering is based on the shed blood of the substitute. Now, the offering itself is very similar to the burnt offering of chapter 1. In fact, it's even mentioned here. So the worshiper would bring an animal. That animal had to be without defect or blemish. Would bring the animal to the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. He would lay his hand on the head of the animal and butcher it. The priest would then, would then throw some of the blood on the altar and burn the sacrificial meat. Now the biggest difference between this offering and the burnt offerings of chapter 1 is that the burnt offerings were completely consumed, whereas this um, peace offering or fellowship offering was not completely consumed. Instead, only the, only the fat portions and essentially some of the internal organs were burned up, consumed. Again, more on that in, in a minute. I realize I'm pointing at chapter 7 a lot um, this morning, and we're going to get there. But chapter 7 tells us that the, the rest of the animal is divided between the priests and the worshipers. Um, so this offering is consumed, as it were, by three parties. The Lord, Yahweh, who obviously doesn't eat it, but, but sees it, smells it consumed on the fire. It's a pleasant aroma. The priests and the people. Three parties. Essentially, this is both parties of the covenant, the people of Israel and God, and the priests who are acting as covenant mediators. And so this illustrates for us a couple of different things. The first thing this illustrates for us is that God's redeemed people enjoy peace with Him. God's people enjoy peace with God. Now, here's why this is translated as peace offering. That word that, that most English translations, I looked through a bunch of them, most of them use the word peace there. Um, this is the word in, in which we get the word Salem, as in Jerusalem, which means either, either teaching of peace or foundation of peace. And it's all, all tied up in the, in the meaning of that word is this idea of being in a covenant of peace, like a peace treaty. So to be in a covenant of peace is much more secure for example, than the, 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 the anti-war movement's uh, wish of peace, right? Give peace a chance. To just say peace is sort of meaningless. It means that you wish for it. But to be in a covenant of peace is that there is established, genuine, actual peace. To be in a covenant of peace with God means that we're in peaceful fellowship with God. We are not under His wrath. So for Israel... There were two evidences of this. First, this was the sacrificial offering wherein they were instructed to eat this in his presence the first time in order to ratify or renew the covenant. 
So in Leviticus 24, verse 5, um, I read verses 7 to 9, but verse 5, just a few verses before that, says this. When the covenant was ratified, this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, Moses sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. That means that that in some sense, we could even say that this was a, if we can put it this way, this was a communion meal. It's a communion meal. We need to be a little bit careful because we're kind of jumping way ahead in redemptive history. But the second evidence that Israel was at peace with God, and I think this is really important, the second evidence that Israel is at peace with God was that at that ratification of the covenant, that covenant meal on the holy hill, on Mount Sinai, God did not smite them. I read it earlier. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They were at peace with God. They did not have to fear for their lives because of their sin, because he had covered it. They were at peace with God. I I love this connection. Peace with God follows obedience to God. Peace with God follows obedience to God. So, So think of it like this. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Versus, he did not lay his hand on them. They beheld God and ate and drank. Peace with God follows obedience to God. So when this sacrifice was given, it always followed the burnt offering. Meaning that peaceful fellowship with God was based on atonement. You cannot have peace with God if your sins have not been atoned for, not been paid for. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So not only do God's people, uh, God's redeemed people enjoy peace with Him, but God's people also, by necessity, must celebrate peace with Him. We could also say it like this, as the psalmist says in Psalm 107, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble, gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north, from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them. From their distress, he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This this sacrifice, it's an expression and a celebration of, of being at peace with God, of dwelling in, in, in the safety and security of God's holy city. Now remember, this chapter is just the recipe. It doesn't explain how to be at peace with God. 
Rather, it's just a shadow of the peace that comes from the, the atonement of Christ. Remember, it's connected to the burnt offering. We cannot forget that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no peace. Without the cross, there is no peace. So when you read Leviticus chapter 3 by itself, this is why we struggle with this sometimes. When we read this by itself, it's just the rituals of the law. It's completely foreign to our modern ears, our modern sensibilities. And when the Israelites wanted to celebrate their relationship with God, they had to follow these specific guidelines. They had to follow this specific law. Well, the peace offering it was essentially an optional sacrifice, although it was certainly expected at many different um, occasions, and again, we'll see this more as the book unfolds. But this was not the type of offering that just anyone can bring. I don't know if you picked up on this, if you've listened to chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, the burnt offering had different types of chapter 1, had different types of animals, basically for different income levels. You could even capture a bird and bring it as a, as a burnt offering. The idea here with the peace offering is that the poor, those who didn't have cattle or sheep or goats, they could eat of the offerings of those who had the means to bring a goat or a lamb or a calf. This was a communal offering that could be served to all of the people of God. So now make that tie to the New Testament. Make that connection to communion for us. Consider Paul's rebuke of the Corinthian church regarding the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 to 22, he rebukes the church and says this, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I think it's actually a pretty obvious connection here. Especially when we consider Acts chapter 2, where I started this morning. It says this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And then it says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, I know I'm making a, a bit of an exegetical leap here, um, but when we come together to eat that little piece of bread or drink that little bit of Welch's, we are renewing our covenant commitment to God. We are saying, as a church, we are still in Christ because He is faithful. When you eat the bread and drink the cup and so proclaim His death, you are saying, I am in Christ because Christ is faithful. One of the things I so love about this church, about RBC, are the peaceful 
fellowship offerings we make when we come together twice a month to feast together. I've said before, my first couple of years of ministry here, a decade or so ago, I wasn't sure that people liked each other that much. If we were to do a meal like we're going to do today, there were times when someone would have to slip out during the service and run to Kroger to make sure that there was enough food. But the Lord has done an amazing work in the hearts of the people in this church, including my own. And so when we come together twice a month to eat together, we are devoting ourselves to the fellowship. And so we pray and we trust that our worship in here rises as a pleasant aroma to God. And that when we go out there to eat, it is a peace offering to the Lord. It is a confirmation of the covenant relationship that we have with our Redeemer. It's not individual. It's not just me and my Lord, whatever, in the woods doing whatever people who claim to be Christians in the United are really just hunting do. It is our relationship with the Lord together. I'm not, I'm not trying to shame anybody into staying for lunch. But if you don't, you should really consider it because it is an offering of peaceful fellowship with the Lord and with his church, with his people. It is a sacrifice. I understand that. It's a sacrifice for us to stay on Sunday afternoons. Even to bring something to share can be a sacrifice. Some of that sacrifice is, so, is small for some of us, and for some it is a big sacrifice, but it is an offering of peace. And so this celebration of peaceful fellowship with Yahweh here in Leviticus chapter 3, it is based on the shed blood of the substitute, and it is characterized by a surrender to God. It is characterized by a surrender to God. So according to these instructions, certain parts of the animal were given to God. And these are the same parts that are given in the, in the purification offerings or the sin offerings that we will look at, uh, Lord willing, next week in the next chapter. And because these things are given to God, verse 17 specifically prohibits eating them. Now, two quick explanations here. First, let me, let me read verse 17. It says, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. So blood is prohibited for consumption because of its use in the atonement. Um, Leviticus 17 verse 11 actually says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So, so we understand that an animal cannot live without blood. And so we've said before, I've said it several times this morning, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the priests, Aaron's sons, they would, they would throw the blood of the sacrifice on the altar as part of the offering. Now, secondly, fat. Fat was always associated with the best, with abundance. Nobody's saying amen, but that's okay. 
This is where we get the phrase that I think we first see it in Genesis chapter 45, verse 18, which says this, And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat of the fat of the land. The fat of the land. So even though this seems strange to us, the entrails and and all of this, it seems kind of strange to us. This was a way for the people of Israel to bring an offering of their best to God, to the one in whom they had now fellowship and and peace. David would say it like this in, in, in Psalm 51, for I will not delight in sacrifice, or I would, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Lord wants our hearts. David understood that, and he understood that from the law of God. He understood that it wasn't about the specific parts of the animal. God wants everything about us. He wants our hearts. He wants our devotion. This is a way for the worshipers to surrender their best to the Lord. But not just the the best stuff, their hearts. This is also about surrendering our wills to God, our contrite hearts. Here's a little more explanation of this. In the ancient mind, the kidneys, as well as other internal organs represented the seat of emotions, our guts. That's what they represented. Typically, we use the word heart when we think about our emotions and our will. Everybody understands, in a week and a half or something is Valentine's Day, and every box of chocolates is not shaped like a kidney or a long lobe of liver. It's shaped like a heart, and we understand what it is representing, right? Right? It's not shaped like a real heart, but you know what I mean. We use the word heart when we think about our emotions, when we think about our will. Now listen to Job 19, verse 27. Whom shall I see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another? My heart faints within me. My heart faints within me. That word for heart there, the Hebrew word is actually kidney. But if we said, my kidney faints within me, we would immediately think that Job needed dialysis and not necessarily what he means. We know what he means when he says, my heart faints within me. I'm losing the will to live. So by giving over these internal parts of the of the sacrificial animal, by giving them over to the Lord in this sacrifice, the worshipers were essentially giving their hearts over to God, their deepest intentions and emotions. They were giving their wills over to the Lord. So here's the point of this. The natural expectation for someone who enjoys God's grace and His blessings is worship. This is what our Lord, what our Redeemer, our Savior expects from us. What He expects from His people. That we should worship Him. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. No one should claim God's grace 
No one should claim God's mercy or peace with God if they, if they refuse to surrender to Him wholly, completely. And so this celebration of, of peace and fellowship is based on the shed blood of the substitute. It is characterized by a surrender to God. And it is also, and this is so important for us, it is also pleasing to the Lord. It is pleasing to the Lord. Three times in this chapter, three times it's called a food offering. But Yahweh requires no food. Yahweh requires no food. And yet this is called a food offering. In fact, later, it's going to be revealed that the people will be the ones who will eat of it. In almost all of the other sacrifices, the worshiper gives to God. Here, God gives to his people. Here, God feeds his people. God uses this offering to feed his people. At the heart of this sacrificial offering is the truth that those who have been redeemed and have therefore given their lives to God, they will joyfully and eagerly participate in these communal acts of worship. We will devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And to us, the Lord's Supper is that time that we look forward to because it is a celebration of the fact that we are at peace with God. We are at peace with God. Truly, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, Lord. A table. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. When we come to the table, and I know that I've put the two things together. I've done it intentionally. We come to the table to eat. When we come to take the bread and drink of the cup, we come with a sacrifice of praise celebrating the peace that we have with God because of the the body and blood of Christ. And when we gather out there in a few minutes and we eat and he feeds us literally, remember that we are his people. He is our God. And rejoice that the Lord has gathered us together has called us by his name and has said grace to you and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Pray with me. Father, what more can we say? And yet we worship you because of all that you have done for us. We come to you, Lord, we come to the table to eat and drink. We come to the table, Lord, 
to proclaim Christ's death, to renew our covenant commitment to you because you are faithful to us. We are still your people. We will be your people next week. We will be your people next year. We will be your people and one day we will see you face to face and eat of the marriage supper of the Lamb with Christ. We long for that day, Lord, and we pray with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord. And until then, we will come every week to your table, to your word, to be fed by you for your glory. Father, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.